Greetings, happy warriors. And uh, the the show's a little bit different today, and let me tell you why that is. But first of all, um, as always, I have to ask you to please make sure you are subscribed. So to whatever platform you listen on, please go ahead and subscribe because uh, that is something that does not uh, harm you at all and helps us at this end. And we really are doing well, by the way. Let me thank the many of you who have been acceding to my requests in in earlier shows, because guess what? Uh, I just saw recently that uh, thanks to those of you listening on YouTube and subscribing, uh, we went past the 53,000 mark, which is terrific. Thank you very much indeed. I am looking onwards and upwards to hitting 55,000 and then 60,000. So at any rate, if you listen on on YouTube, go ahead and subscribe. And if you listened on any other platform, they all have an opportunity to subscribe. Please go ahead and do exactly that. And uh, on we go. As you know, I am your rabbi dedicated to making you aware of how the world really works. And that's the focus of everything we do on this show. Uh, with an occasional uh, exception, and I'm not sure this is even an exception, really, and that is that uh, I became aware of a South African-born and based entrepreneur uh, who has built an international business. He is um, followed and listened to on many, many continents, and he uh, he speaks very effectively very effectively. And uh, as you know, I, I retain a degree of um, emotional nostalgia for Africa, my birth continent. And uh, I, um, I actually, I mention the feelings that I experienced when I landed at Accra Airport in Ghana a little while ago, first time back on African soil in many, many years. So um, the entrepreneur's name is Vusi Tembekwayo, and um, Vusi Tembekwayo is a, uh, a very, very effective speaker and an effective spokesman for business as you and I understand it. So um, I uh, reached out to him for a conversation, and, and we did have a conversation, and we'd barely started before I realized that... Uh, I hadn't intended to something to share. I just thought this was something I was going to enjoy. And we had just about got started. And when all of a sudden I said to myself, this doesn't make sense. This should be recorded. And so we arranged to record it. And then we continued talking. And I'm very pleased I did because I think that you will enjoy uh, hearing our discussion, our conversation. And uh, we're going to do some more of this and perhaps, uh, perhaps more focused, specific interviews and I'll share those with you as well. But uh, uh, unfortunately, one of the things, and I'd been hearing about this, about uh, the fact that ESCOM, Electricity Supply Commission, is a company that was started in South Africa early 20th century. I don't remember. I'm going to say the 50s, maybe the 60s. Um, And uh, it became the largest electricity-generating utility in Africa, and uh, it was and it was really a model. People came from all over the world to see the operations of this enormous and reliable power generation facility that owned and operated many different generation plants. 
and tied it all together in a national grid on the southern tip of the African continent. Well, times have changed, and uh, ESCOM is now a disaster, a cesspool of corruption and ineffectiveness and inefficiency. And uh, the best indication of a third world country is power outages. That tells you you're in a country that's headed in the wrong direction. So that applies, unfortunately, it would seem to South Africa now. And it also applies to California, by the way. Uh, here we are in the, the middle of another summer, and without doubt, there are going to be brownouts and blackouts in California as well, uh, as well as people being told not to charge their electric cars. So it goes. Um, we, um, In addition to uh, asking you to subscribe, I'm going to ask you to also visit the website at rabbidaniellappin.com because we have a special right now on uh, a wonderful book called Buried Treasure. And it's a book that exposes the marvels and the magic of the Lord's language uh, into the eyes and hearts of people who don't know Hebrew. And uh, here it is. It's a, uh, a book that focuses in on about 30 examples of words that unpack their meaning intrinsically, right? In other words, in, in English, uh, the word carpet tells you absolutely nothing. Unless you've been taught that a carpet is a covering on the floor, you wouldn't know what a carpet is. And uh, if, um, if you happen to know the word car as a four-wheeled conveyance powered by an engine, and you happen to know the word pet, a domesticated animal, the fact that you know the word a car and you know the word pet wouldn't tell you anything about the word carpet. But none of these things are true in Hebrew. In Hebrew, words reveal their meaning sometimes by the numerical value of the letters, sometimes by uh, means of uh, forwards, backwards, reversals, and many other interesting ways that I think help get, get you a picture of just why it is that the fundamental book written in that language, the Hebrew scriptures, uh, are what they are and why they've played the role they have in the development of civilization among humanity. So all of that is uh, ready for you. Special deal you uh, can't lose. It's an absolutely wonderful opportunity to grab this, and you'll see it at rabbidaniellappin.com. Okay, look, let's, uh, let's just dive in to uh, the Vusi Tembequayo discussion. And uh, I, I'm not going to come back to you at the end. Uh, it's just going to end, and that's it. But uh, I will take this opportunity of wishing you a wonderful week of growth and progress as you move onwards and upwards with your families and your faith, your finances and your friendships and your fitness. Let's move ahead. Okay, there we go. So, so what I wanted to know was... Um, uh, my superpower, I think, is my ability to be really curious and ask questions. And and just off the back of the the, the kind of the way you've approached your books, I just want to know of the principles you discovered around what it is that the Jewish people are taught in the ancient text about their relationship with the world, and obviously how it manifests for us is they're good with money, but it really is they're good with a a particular relationship with the world. What would be like two principles that in your mind just stick out? Um, sure. Um, so one of them is 
the the integrated nature of everything, meaning that uh, specialists fulfill a very valuable function uh, in uh, in in running your business. You use them in running my business. I use them. I consult when when an issue comes up. I consult with our legal people. And and their best advice would be for me to uh, run no risk at all. And then I consult with the financial folks, and they're saying, "But wait, we need to generate a profit, and and this deal is too good to pass up." And uh, and then I speak to the uh, to our public relations experts, and they say their little thing. And at the end of the the day, I am the CEO. <laughs> And uh, I have to make the decision. But I, I would never uh, place a specialist in the CEO chair in, in any business over which I have influence. Sure. And so uh, in, in terms of wisdom, in terms of understanding how the world really works, uh, it's understanding the interaction of all these things. And okay. so um, when it comes to uh, uh, money principles, it's very hard to isolate them entirely from marriage and family principles. Now, I'll, I'll give you an example of why that is. Um, one uh, one explanation is, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, that um, one of the things that we obviously all need in business is an ability to to see into the future. That doesn't yeah. mean we can become prophets. And it doesn't mean we'll always be right, but it means that we have an ear out for the sound of the soft footsteps of approaching events. Oof. And um, and in that's order, so to, I'm sorry. That's good. That's really good. And in order to heighten our sensitivity to that, um, we we have to avoid being orphans of time. An orphan of time is what I just define as um, uh, somebody who lives entirely in the present, has no understanding of the past, and no connection with the future. And it's very easy to live in the present because it's tangible, and I can touch it and eat it and drink it. It's it's right there. But I also need to be able to watch the patterns of the past. Because very often it is the uh, structure of the past that provides me with the most reliable format to visualize the future. Mm. Um, you know, we know that with people, a person's track record is far more important to me than what his public relations people tell me. Mm. I got to look backwards and forwards. Um, one of the things that really helps being forward is uh, being around children. Now, you know, one can say, what's that got to do with anything? And and the answer is that um, uh, if, you know, I ask somebody, could you please help me move this heavy bookcase? And the person says, well, I don't know, you know, I haven't been to the gym the last three weeks. And I say, listen, I didn't ask for your schedule. I'm not interested in your history. I just want you to help me push the bookcase. He says, you don't understand. If I'd been at the gym regularly, I would be... Uh, supple and stronger and my muscles would be conditioned he says i'm not sure I, the things i did 
will have an impact on how effectively I perform now. And, uh, and similarly, there is a certain um, spiritual sensitivity to the future that comes from being around little children. It's one of the reasons that, uh, that being in a country or being in a neighborhood, America, America has retirement neighborhoods. I, I don't know if you've ever seen such a thing, Mr. Mbekwayo. Have no. It's miserable. It's truly miserable. You go there and it's only elderly people. Now, I, I've got nothing against lives of their lives. Yes. And I've got nothing against where elderly where people. Fresh ideas from and fresh inspiration and a the youth place, the, these retirement communities that don't allow young people and don't allow children, they reek of death. Sure. Um, but if you go to one of the reasons I like going to Israel is it's about outside of Africa, which is exactly the same. Uh, Israel is filled with kids. Mm. It regularly happens. I stand at a traffic light waiting to cross the street and, and some little five-year-old urchin sticks her hand in my hand because her mother told her don't cross the street without an adult. Never seen this kid before. She holds my hand tightly while we cross the street, and then she leaves going and runs off, you know. It, there's, there's little kids all over the place. And uh, when I spoke in, in Ghana uh, a little while ago, I had the same sense. They're young people. There's vitality and uh, and that excitement. So, yes, and if I, I would say to, uh, and I have said this even to young um uh technical and financial uh entrepreneurs you know single guys single women i say listen you want my uh, best advice on this topic offer to babysit some little kids on on a weekly basis because and if and if what do you say why <laughs> because because it will it it it's like going to the gym it it infuses a freshness and a vitality and a sense of the future that you can't get any other way. Oh. So uh, so that you know that that's one aspect uh, one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is that uh, uh, you can't ever succeed. No decent person can ever succeed at any activity that deep in his heart he considers to be morally reprehensible. And so if uh, if you see making money as synonymous with taking money and that your actions of making money have to correspond to other people losing money, if that's your vision of economics, then you are condemning yourself to perpetual financial stagnation. Because if you're a decent person, you can't do it. And that's one of the reasons I've discovered that many people are uncomfortable naming their fee or their price. Because they feel bad, they feel they're taking money. Mm. So uh, those are adding value to the world. They think they're taking something from it. Absolutely, they do. Yes, yeah. So you uh, said that. Sorry, let me interrupt you because I, I I don't have any data to back this up, but I kind of intuitively want to say that there might even be a link between that kind of mindset and uh, poverty in certain population groups, and I would even extend that to say poverty in certain nations, because if you if you criminalize the accumulation of wealth, it's typically because you, that's your understanding of wealth, is that wealth is extractive and wealth is manipulative by nature. And so if that is the case, then there's absolutely no way 
you're going to allow others to accumulate wealth in your society. So if, if you're not allowed to accumulate wealth and wealth accumulation is criminalized, then we create the society where we're all equally miserable. Yes. <laughs> and we're wondering why there are people on the other end of the fence who are all equally happy and all equally financially successful. And so what we begin to do is we create you know, the ghost of these macro factors around a certain yeah. population group being discriminatory or a certain geography having advantage or, but we create these, uh, you know, academically sound arguments, but actually what it gets down to is quite simply that our belief system is wrong. We believe Absolutely. money is evil. That, that is exactly right. And the evidence, I mean, you asked for evidence. The evidence is that um, uh, one of the phrases that uh, sickens me. I mean, I, I truly have a visceral reaction against it. You keep hearing it whenever a philanthropist makes a gift, some commentator on television says, isn't it wonderful to see him giving back to society? As if he took away from. You got it, exactly. While he was making the money in the... Sorry? I've never thought of that. But it's right, isn't it? If he's now giving back to society while he was making the money in the first place, he was taking from society, obviously. So what you're telling me is that one of the beliefs in the community is that making money and adding value to society are not mutually exclusive. That in fact, a big part of how you add value to society is measured in your ability to make a return from the value you add to society. I, I would agree with that 100%. I think you expressed it better than I do. That's exactly right. Very, very, very powerful. So in other words, um, uh, is it important to give charity? And a lot of people will say, well, we expect it because those who have great wealth must give much. No. When you made the money in the first place, you were already giving. Because nobody forced me at the point of a gun to buy your goods or to avail myself of your services. <laughs> and therefore, I did those things. I bought your goods uh, because I wanted to. They improved my life. So you were already improving everybody's lives before you give a penny away to charity. <laughs> That's so good. That's so, so it's good. really important. So this you, is. I'm curious, just lastly on this, I'm curious about. Is there is there is there a value, whether perceived or real, in a community seeking to make wealth and create wealth as a community rather than the individual? That's the first question. And the second question is, is that a more sustainable way to create value in the long term? Or or do you not have a view on on, on that? And so um the uh, the idea is i think that um collective activity works best by contract sure. so in other words if if you and i decide to go into business we might agree that our proposed venture will be good shall we say, let's say we wanted to do something in Africa, It'd be good for Africa. Uh, we might decide it's even good for the world. But in the final analysis, the real question 
And this is not a selfish thing at all. This is a sustainable thing. The real question is, will this be profitable to both of us? And if so, let's establish a contractual relationship that defines each of our responsibilities and uh, and defines the um, uh, division of uh, the of the company and of the benefits. And we have to do that because the only way to really make sure that we are helping other human beings is if they are willing to pay for it. And one of the dangers of politics is that politicians very often um, arrive at the arrogant presumption that they know better than individuals and better than the people they represent what is good for those people instead of letting those people decide for themselves. And money is just this wonderful tool that allows each person to make his own voting for whatever he wants. Absolutely. Because every day when you're in the market, the customer has to vote for you by buying your product. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, um, so the 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 only other aspect of the question you raised is that our uh, success um, is very much a function of the number of people who know us, who like us, and who trust us. And so, obviously, uh, you know, have I have I lost you at all? Our um alternative energy to to kick in so, oh sorry, my goodness where where about are you uh, speaking from i'm in south africa at the moment yeah yeah i'm i'm so sorry to hear about that i've been hearing about um increasing numbers of, of power failures a true a true um testimony of what you were talking about earlier you know the one of those one of those things about if you if you think good leadership is overrated try bad leadership and then very quickly you'll realize the true cost of of leadership right so south africa sadly finds itself in 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 the milieu of um leaders whose performance is not tethered to the reality of their people um and so and and frankly in in part uh, people who um, have not yet developed a robust relationship of accountability with their leaders. And so uh, in this part of the world, politicians, for whatever reason, are cherished. And 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 uh, it's changing a bit now. It's changing a bit now, but it's not great. Anyway, that's, yeah, that's what happened. I'm, I'm sorry to hear it. I'm very not sorry to hear it. Um, I should probably... <laughs> here we are in the middle of a, a fascinating conversation uh, briefly interrupted by uh, a power outage, but I should at least um, introduce you uh, to the audience that I'm hoping we'll be able to share this with. And uh, I'm talking to a global business leader and well-known international speaker, Mr. Vusi Tembekwayo, who is in South Africa right now as we speak. And uh, I'm, of course, in the United States. But I've been fascinated by uh, your dedication to bringing sound money principles and increasing the financial uh, capabilities of people worldwide, but uh, but notably in in what we think of today as the global south, uh, we, that would that would be a true description of your passion, right? Yeah, I mean, I think you've you've absolutely nailed it. I'm I'm. Um... I I am intrigued by imbalance 
would probably be the best way to put it. So anything where there is no where there is no balance, I, it just naturally fascinates me, and I, I kind of step into the breach and go right into the into the crucible of of what it is that creates that imbalance. Because I think once we understand certain imbalances at at the at the at the results end, we're able to change behaviors on the input side. And and we live in a world where people don't like to understand imbalances. They like to to uh, moan, to complain, to argue, but not to try and understand the imbalances. So you know, my my, my quest to try and understand how value is created, how wealth is created. Um, and how certain population groups just seem to land on their feet has been driven by this quite simple quest to really understand what what drives what drives imbalances. And um, uh, how would you encapsulate uh, the 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 most critical and noteworthy imbalances? Um, shall we say, in, in Africa today? Uh, wealth is probably the most important one. Um, and it's the most important one because for this particular generation of Africans, it's the one that's the most material. Um, uh, young Africans are, and and I, I, I dare I have and presume upon myself the right to speak on their behalf, but my reading of it is that the average young African is quite concerned with their the material state of their world and their material state in the world, right? And they and they don't accept that they that they belong to some um, you know uh, third world construct about which they can't with, within which they can't thrive. So so that would be be the first. The second is that you know young Africans have proven themselves very capable. We we go to the top universities in the world. We study. All of the most advanced subjects, and and we are able to hold our own with our counterparts from the rest of the world. So we're pretty we're pretty clear that we're capable. And I think the question that now beckons is: if we are capable, then how does that capability translate into our ability to to compete in the world? Um, so so you know so that's been my it's been my it's been my fascination, my subject of study, and it's. And and it's and it's it's led me down this interesting path of trying to understand the cultures and population groups in the world that we look at and revere. What what is it that they have in common? Look, one person observes something; it's a single person's observation. Um, two people observe it, then maybe they're you know they're in collusion. But when something becomes an unspoken truism, then there is something there that needs to be studied. And I'm just the guy who's going. I need to understand why this is, and uh, and so yeah, that's that's why. You know, um, when uh, at, at, apropos your point that Africans um, are uh, uh, are demonstrating um, capability, um, Africans who immigrate or spend time in the United States dramatically outperform. The native population, both black and white. Yeah, that's you know it, it's it's a sociological observation that is inescapable and very disturbing to many people. But yes, it's it's a it's a reality. There's something there, right? And I, I think that if you think about 
um, the rise of migrant nations. These are nations whose economies are built off the back of migrant talent, right? And there are many of those around the world. Nations who, if you think today about how many nations have got these uh, specialist work visas and these golden visas, it's because they've recognized and understood. And I think that the, the underlying answer to your question is that if 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 I grew up in a desert country and I arrive in a country that is flush with water, right? My relationship with water is very different to the people who grew up in that country. That's right. And, and true too, if I grew up in a country where, you know, uh, there are challenges around corruption and uh, state infrastructure and state resources are not evenly distributed or efficiently managed, uh, opportunities are uh, either monopolized or corrupted, and I all of a sudden arrive in an environment where even if that is the case, it's nowhere near as pronounced as the place I come from. And there is better access to opportunities. Uh, state resources are more efficiently and more um, um, uh, optimized. Then I'm going to thrive because I've survived in a hostile environment. I'm definitely going to kick ass in this new environment. And I, and I think that's a big part of the reason why. A big part of the reason why you see that kind of migrant outlier um, result in in terms of how different population groups are able to contribute when they move to different countries. Um, and yet, um, uh, there there must be profound cultural differences. Um, look, I'm um, I have an emotional connection with Africa. Um, right. I sometimes joke with people here in the United States by saying I may be one of the most genuine African Americans you're likely to meet today. <laughs> oh dear, <laughs> um, that. <laughs> And uh, yeah, uh, so yes, I, I, I'm, I'm American, but I'm also African. And um, I, I, I think um, that I think that there is um, there are aspects of a very healthy culture in Africa. Sure. And I contrast that. Um, you know, we were talking about uh, immigrants from all parts of Africa uh, to the United States who uh, who typically just do really, really well. Um, but at the same time, France has just come out of a uh, a period of intense rioting and and civic unrest, a um, billion dollars worth of damage on the streets of France. Um, several thousand people uh, in uh, police detention, and um, and this is making France question uh, the wisdom of importing millions of immigrants who were mostly uh, North African origin and Muslim of uh, of religion. In general, I think it's fair to say that whether you look at France, Germany, uh, Sweden, Norway, and Italy, um, this particular group has not been that effective at integrating, have not been particularly effective in uh, in enjoying the water, in being able to uh, seize the op economic opportunities that present themselves. So 
I think you've got to start off with the right culture. I'm not sure that everybody is equivalent and the same in this respect. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, far be it for me to comment on matters of immigration. It's by no by no means my, my area of expertise. But if I were to offer a layman's thought and perspective on this, I think that one of the challenges many parts of the world face is when they don't make the terms of immigration clear, right? So, you know, I, 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 I am based both in South Africa and in the Middle East. And I remember when I, you know, you know, really kind of embedded myself in, in, in the Middle East, in the, in the Emirates, they were very clear about who they are. And they were very clear about who they are not. And they were very clear about the terms of living, existing, and contributing in their society. Oh, very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. I understand. And you don't hear the rest of the world going, well, you know, they're racist because they're not. And you don't hear the rest of the world say, well, you know, they are discriminatory because they're not. What they are is abundantly clear on the values that they hold dear as a society, the structure of a society that works for them, and and the various contributions the moving parts of that society are allowed to make. So what they're saying is you can come here, but you don't leave where you're leaving. Get to come here because you've seen what we've done and then want to change it. That's right. If you like where you've come from, stay where you've come from, right? But if you like what we've built here, then you honor what it is that we built here. In fact, a, a, a good friend of mine who's high up in, in the offices of, of the government, I'll never forget, he said to me when I was getting my, my, my residency card, he said to me, this residency card has a couple of terms with it. One of them is that you stay out of our politics. So, and, and you know, they are, you know, they, <laughs> they're a monarch, right? They're, <laughs> And and so what he was saying was, don't come here with those crazy ideas of the, we don't do that stuff here. You keep that where if that works, stay there. But if you want to come you know, here, you can work here, you can contribute here, you can create wealth here, and you can enjoy our society. But you enjoy our society. You don't get to change our society to reflect the society you come from. Sorry, let me just finish with this. And I do think that the, the I do think that the, the pendulum of tolerance can swing too far. I know that's not a popular message in today's world of kumbaya and we're we're all in this together. Yeah, yeah. of tolerance can swing too far. We can be so tolerant of everything that we stand for nothing. And 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 if you don't make terms abundantly clear, then people are going to push against against the 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 way of life as you have it because you've not made clear that certain things are immutable, that they're, that they're immovable. And that those are embedded values of of your of your culture. Sadly, uh, you are very accurately describing circumstances in the United States today. Uh, but what you were talking about uh, in the uh, in the uh, uh, in the Middle East and in the Gulf states in which you operate, um, it's back to contracts, isn't it? Yeah. Here's here's the deal. Here's what you may do, and here's what you may not do. Absolutely. And if, if you follow our rules, here are the benefits you can expect. And if you don't, we are letting you know that that will not be an option. 
I mean, I think that the the US and and you know I'm a I'm a I'm a distant YouTube student. So let me disqualify myself immediately before I make the statement. I'm a distant YouTube student of US politics, but I think one of the fascinations is one of the founding doctrines of the United States is give me liberty or give me death. Right? And what we are learning today or perhaps what the US is learning is it can't be liberty at all costs that there is a price too far to pay for this idea of lady liberty yes. and what the us is i suppose being forced to ask itself now is what is the cost that we're willing to pay when we say um you know we are the land of the free you know you you can't be free of you if you have freedom of choice you can't be free of consequence and uh, I mean, I, I hasten to, uh, you know, I hesitate to share this, but I do think that the the U.S. is experimenting with things that parts of the world have experimented with and have found not to work, right? Um, and and she's testing it, and it's a very very dangerous game. I think that it's a counterintuitive message in today's world. It's not a popular message in today's world, but a leader's role is not to be popular, it's to be effective, and a society's role is to preserve itself for the for the safety of its children that's the role of society and society should replicate a set of values that ensure that its offspring have the best opportunity at life yes that's the role of society and and i hasten to say that the us is is toying with both of those and it's a very dangerous game but again you know i'm a i'm a distant youtube student of, of watching what's happening well a, a, a distant youtube student is also allowed to be 100 correct in my view so and you know if i can uh add just one thing to what you're saying back to something we discussed earlier being an orphan in time when you cut people off from their society's past destroy statues and monuments of the past uh, one of the uh, the reasons this is such an effective tool of tyrannical regimes is that when you isolate people from their past, uh, they turn to you to shape their future. That's right. Which is why dictators don't want their citizens believing in God, because they want to be God. No, that that's exactly right. And they also have to harm family, because yeah. people... Uh, people who have the strength of family have less dependency on centralized government uh, away from these depressing topics. <laughs> Look, let, me, let me just say to you on this very, very quickly that yeah. in addition to that, um, I think you're 100% on the money. And I think that, I think one of the, one of the, one of the lessons of our modern day is that the old things are true. And it's a, it's such a silly lesson to learn, but the old things are true. The things your grandfather taught you were true. The values your grandparents raised you with were true, right? They are what sustained Homo sapiens. Um, whether you believe in the theory of evolution or not, they are what has sustained us over, over the extinction of many other species. We're still here. It's because there were values that have been passed down generation to generation, civilization to civilization, culture to culture, nation state to nation state that have held true across time. And what we are doing again today is we're, we're pulling at the, at the elastic of these old things. And sadly, you know, sometimes it's using pseudoscience to say things are what they are not. 
And and the most insidious thing I'll say to you, Rabbi Lapin, is this. It's that for whatever reason, we vice has become virtue. <laughs> it's, you, you know, uh, those who are sowing vice hide behind the virtue of victimization and then say, well, we're the victims here. No, no, you don't get to start a fight and then call yourself a victim. <laughs> yes, that's uh, right. <laughs> that's not, yeah, that's not quite the way that that works, right? It, that's gaslighting. So, yeah. yeah. And even in the marketplace, I'm finding more and more that it really is up to those of us who hold a view who to to be clear about what that view is and what the what what it is that we believe should be shaping the world and how the world should be shaped around around the future, in particular for the future of our children. So it's a very interesting time to be alive, no doubt. It's a wonderful time to be alive and also a wonderful time to be in a position as you are of significant influence. Mm -hmm. And um, in in that context, let's let's try a thought experiment. Um, if it if it doesn't get any traction between us, we'll 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 drop it. But a thought experiment. Twenty families come to you and they say um we we each have a teenage child shall we say 13 years old we would like to leave them under your tutelage for the next 10 years with the proviso that when they're 23 in 10 years time they are already on the road to successful living right what do you do? You you're in charge now. So so let me see if I frame the question. So um, I'm given carte blanche over raising children, and the idea is that I must raise them for the single outcome of what? Of successful, happy living as adults when they hit twenty three, and their parents will agree. So to to do any aspect of of this that uh, that you stipulate uh, at at the age of 23 they have to be in a position to live happy fulfilling successful lives the first thing i would do is i would make it abundantly clear that the foundational element of any meaningful life is serving a purpose and that the only true way to connect to the purpose you serve is to is to connect to your true God. That's it. So, so none of this atheist nonsense. And I feel very strongly about this. As a somebody I know who passed away recently, and one shouldn't speak ill of the dead, but this particular person was an atheist and had confessed themselves to be so. They enjoyed a public platform, which to me was problematic because they, you then you then begin to share that with the rest of the world, right? In any event, they passed away quite suddenly. And at their memorial service, somebody was talking about how they've ascended to it. And I said, no, they haven't ascended anywhere. I couldn't <laughs> said it to myself. I didn't say it to them. They didn't <laughs> right. ascend anywhere. You can't ascend to something you don't believe. You don't get to opt in and out. This is not a, it's not a casino. It's not a carnival. You know, it's not an arcade. You know, there's no three lives and then you die from the game of Pac-Man, right? So, so the first thing I would do is I would make sure that there is a, foundational understanding of god foundational I mean, understanding of god don't you i mean i think that 
much of, of your audience would be shocked that that is your first prescription. You've got cotton. Yeah. There's so many things that uh, I think that your international audience, I think many people would be shocked to hear that from you. I, I'm even a bit surprised. Look, I think you're right. It's the first thing I would introduce as well. I don't know if we'll be on the same track moving through the rest of the program, but uh, I would do that as well. But I, I would have thought most people would have said, well, the first thing he would say you got to do is make sure they I don't get a job or, uh, or, or learn finance. No. And the reason you want, and the reason you want to start there is because when man and read here, please gender agnostic, I'm talking man yeah. in the species yeah. sense. When man lives only for his own self, man is dangerous. We've proven this. If there is a single lesson we learn from history is that man who lives for himself is dangerous. He's directionless. He adds no value to society. He doesn't pass on a set of values to the next generation. And he tends to be extractive in his relationship with the world, right? So, so it, it, is, it, is, it is only in the fulfillment of a mandate that man has that man begins to add value to society. That's literally what gives your life meaning. And so to raise children outside of the search of what that mandate is, is an incredibly dangerous social experiment. Right? And I know there are parts of the world that are toying with it. It will not end well, right? Yeah. Uh, there, yeah. there must be a fear. And the reverence of, 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 there must be a fear, a reverence, and a love of something greater than just your individual self. So that's why, for me, I would start. There. We're starting off. We're starting off with um, spiritual awareness as a, a, a attempt, as a word to just encapsulate everything we've been talking about. The second thing I would, the second thing I would then do is I would focus, um. I would truly focus them on learning the value of small tasks done exceptionally well. Um, uh, he's not popular now, but you know, Will Smith in his book, Will talks about this, this particular exp experience he had with his dad. His father was running, a, running a, an ice cream shop and a wall had collapsed in and his father said to him, fix the wall. And he was like, but it's a wall. And he was a kid, you know, I think as nine or 11 years old, and, and he said to his dad, how do I fix a wall? And his dad said, one brick at a time. <laughs> and right. and, Very and that's, nice. that's, a truism, that's a truism for how you build anything sustainable. The Great Wall of China was built one brick at a time. The pyramids of Giza were built one brick at a time. All the architectural marvels that we have in the world were built one brick at a time. And so one of the values to teach children, I think, living in the world today is that this formula of instant gratification is incredibly dangerous because you don't get to see the brick being laid every single day. It's about small tasks done with um, incredible diligence and a dedication to the outcome and painstaking attention to detail every single day, all day. That's what excellence is, right? It's, it's not one big feat. It's the small thing done every day, consistently, diligently. That's what That's gives right. you the outcome that you want. And well, whether it's building a business or being an effective parent and raising a family, it's not the once every nine months or once every year, huge flamboyant heroic gesture, but it's getting up every single morning and doing it right every day. You got it. The, sequence the, third, thing thing. I would, the third thing I would teach them is the value of money. Um, hard thing to teach, by the way. Um, but I think that when, when, when one is able to connect effort 
to to a particular outcome as it relates to money, it changes their relationship with it. So so I would I would I would seek to find a way to teach them the value of money, whether it be you know by getting them to do something through which there is an incentive system, and through that incentive system uh, they get points, and through the points they accumulate some money, and then they get to buy the things that they want, right? Some sort of um, holistic outcomes-driven process approach that helps them understand that yeah. every single dollar and every single cent has a weight in sweat. When you see your mom or your dad or your grandparents having $100 in, in their pocket, that is weighted quite physically by the sweat of their brow. Yes, it didn't right. just appear. Yeah. It, was, it, was, it was effort. In fact, money of itself, paper currency is valueless. What truly gives money value is the effort it takes to create the value through which we extract in that in that in that money. I must tell you, I, I have such a hardened principle on this that this is what's in my office today. It's uh, given to me by a client, and it's a gift. I'll bring that close to you. Um, Reserve Bank of oh, it's a Zimbabwe. It's a that's a real that's a real Zimbabwean banknote. That's not a that's gift. That's right. Ten trillion dollars. Yeah. Yes. That's what happens when a government abandons its primary responsibility of guarding the integrity of the currency. Juxtapose that, then, would you, with this. 100 Zimbabwean dollars. That goes back a few years. Exactly. And then consider that the distance between these two is about a decade. Gosh, <laughs> and 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 I I challenge anybody anybody who who you know as I said earlier wants to experiment with dangerous things like socialism because I don't think they understand what they're doing and I do think those of us who see ourselves as as um, operators in the marketplace who understand the true value of creating value need you, we need to call that stuff up because it's incredibly dangerous so. So I would teach my children the value that there was a time the hundred dollars could buy more than the than the trillion dollars, yeah. and 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 the difference between those two was just our relationship with time and money. Yes, people watching this will in the comment section say, "Yeah, but it was politics and sanctions." Yes, 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 yes. But at the heart of it, it gets down to leaders in charge who make a set of decisions within a given context not recognizing what the consequences of those decisions are. As I said earlier, you have freedom of choice. You don't have freedom of consequences. That's right. And 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 that that is true of a uh, a person who can't swim jumping into the swimming pool as it is of a president who can't lead seeking to run a, for office. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You spoke um and I I don't remember if this was a speech or if it was a, a, a program, but um, you spoke about the the difference between discipline and motivation. Is that ringing a bell? Yes, yes, <laughs> uh, I did indeed. Yeah, I'd, uh, I'd I'd love to to hear you develop that a little bit, if you don't mind. Sure. So motivation. Motivation is um, necessary, but it's not sufficient, right? So, so, and 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 the way 
I think of it in the way I explain it is a motivation is understanding the motive behind the actions you take, right? So motivation, what is the motive behind the actions you take? And, and but again, my obsession studying leaders and communities that outperform their time has been just trying to understand why do some there was a point in in their journey where there was either no motivation or motivation did not matter right um and the reason you know that to be true was because the set of forces they were against were so pronounced that they would have to they would have to mount an order of magnitude the efforts to generate the motivation required to deal with those forces i think here about uh, Mahatma Gandhi fight, fighting for the freedom of the people of India. I think here about which then became India and Pakistan. I think here about Nelson Mandela, who birthed mm. our own uh, true democracy. There's just a point where motivation is not what's getting you to wake up in the morning and do the thing you need to do. Discipline is not sexy. It's not cool. It's not the thing that makes people feel good, but it's actually the thing that matters. It's, it's, it's the commitment to act regardless of how you feel. That's discipline. Whereas motivation is the action because of how you feel. Now, I think it was uh, Kipchoge, Iliad Kipchoge, who said, discipline is true freedom because any person who lives by and acts against the whims of their emotions is a slave. You're a slave to your emotions. I feel great today. I do this. I don't feel great tomorrow. I don't do it. Discipline is not about how you feel. It's about what you committed to doing and getting it done. I mean, I want you to picture a Nelson Mandela who spends 27 years, 26 years and some months behind bars fighting for the liberation of his people, who it was quite possible, you know, would have been sentenced um, uh, to capital punishment and death. And, and because they didn't want to make him a martyr, they then said, well, we'll put you in jail for the rest of your life. You know, we talk about Nelson Mandela spending 27 years in prison, but it's not like they sentenced him to 27 years in prison. I want people to be clear on it. He was sentenced to life in prison. Yeah, it was indefinite. Yep. In prison, exactly. So, so it's not like he woke up every day going, whoo, one more day and I got 27 and I got, you know, I'm one day closer to 27 years. That's not what happened. He didn't even know when the end of the suffering would come. In fact, he didn't know if would, there would be an end of the suffering in his lifetime. But he was committed, committed. And so the question we must ask ourselves is how committed are you? Not how do you feel, because feelings will pass. How committed are you to the resolutions you've made, to the decisions you've made, to the commitments that you've made about yourself? How committed are you? Most of us fail at life because we don't simply have the integrity to honor the commitments we made to ourselves. That's really what it comes down to. And so what we do is... You know, like a sugar high, we're constantly searching for the motivation. So it's the next TikTok video, it's the next Instagram video, it's the next YouTube video. It's the we're constantly trying to throw in this sugar high of motivation, whereas actually what's required is diligence and consistency and discipline. Like I said earlier, the old things are true, right? The old things are true. It's true not only for for money and uh, business. Uh, but exactly what you described is equally true to marriage. Uh, yes. I, I'm not true 
to my wife because I love her. I'm true to her because of commitment, a promise, and discipline. Sure. The love is a natural and inevitable consequence of that. But um, but here in the United States, more and more young people are turning their back on building marriages and families uh, because they don't feel like it. <laughs> yeah. And they don't... As, as I said. Yeah. I but, think I think living by the whims of your feelings is incredibly dangerous. And that's that's what, whatever it is you're doing in life, it's very dangerous. Yeah, 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 right. Look, uh I I could talk to you for much longer, um, electricity power supplies allowing. Uh but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but and I, I hope we'll have an opportunity to continue the conversation. Um uh, we've really just scratched the surface. There, there are so many, uh, so many areas. My my list of things I wanted to ask you, uh, we we've barely got through the first few lines of it. So, uh, so I hope yeah, we'll let's, come. let's let's do a follow up, and we're certainly doing one on my platform as well. I'd love to have you on this. I think that I'm fascinated by religious men and men of religion. I'm fascinated by um, how you straddle the world when it, it seems as if the world, it seems to me, Rabbi, like there is a fight for the soul of the world. If I just, and, and, you might, and I, I'd like to consider myself fairly young. I'm sub 40, I'm 38 years old. I'm old enough to remember the very first digital device I ever owned. Uh, young enough to remember when there were no cell phones around, uh, not ubiquitously available. But I also am fairly, you know, fluent in in migrating the streets of the digital. Yeah. So I'm cool. I can live in both worlds. But if there is a single thing for me that worries me about the season we find ourselves in as humanity, I do think that there is a fight for the soul of the world. And and I think that it is naive of us to believe that that fight exists only in the physical. I think that that fight exists in the spiritual. And I think that those of us who operate in the marketplace can't divorce ourselves from that fight because that fight requires resources that we generate in the marketplace. And so a, an operator and a leader in the marketplace who is either devoid of their spiritual self or doesn't understand the context of the moment is actually an incredibly dangerous tool um, that can be used for, for a moment. And, I, and I'd love to... I'd love to get into your mind and understand some of the values that the everyday ordinary human being can live by, some of the principles and some of the truisms um, to become an effective and value-adding member of society in the world we're in today, where, where being honest and being truthful is just not in vogue. It's not cool. It's much better to be uh, pleasant than to be honest. It's much better to be polite than to be purposeful. It's much better to be... Uh, truthful popular. than to be perceived. Or, yeah, that's exactly right. Much better to yeah. be popular than to be perceived to be to be honest. And I think yeah. that I think that this is a moment that calls for that. No, I, I think that's right, and I also think that um, th that it's it's not even a challenge to straddle the two worlds because they integrate very tightly. Uh, a, a purely materialistic and atheistic outlook 
would say that uh, you and I are nothing more than uh, mm. about $10 worth of common chemicals put together in some cunning way. <laughs> and then, you know, we're... we're quantified it in dollars too. <laughs> yeah, right. No, right. And, um, and, and that therefore every aspect of our lives is biologically and evolutionarily deterministic. But the problem is that's not reality. Um, when when people make buying decisions, they are using their irrational spirit as much as they're using their biological logic. And so exactly um, right. somebody buys a, a shirt with some fancy designer's name on the lapel. That's not a utilitarian decision. It's a decision based on spiritual factors. Mm-hmm. It's not logical. Mm-hmm. It's it's not providing mm-hmm. you better shelter from the elements. It's not using mm-hmm. fewer of your resources <laughs> to acquire. Uh, but but you you're doing it anyways. Every time mm-hmm. you buy a brand item, you are expressing your spiritual, essentially your spiritual nature. Um, I love that. And and there's so there's so many examples of instances like that. So. Uh, so to me, it's not even a case of straddling two worlds. It's integrating the two worlds for a complete and accurate understanding of how everything really comes together and how everything really works. I love that. Thank you, Rabbi. I would love that. So I'm going to set that up. I'm going to have you on my platform. We're going to have that conversation. We you shall, and I are going to have a follow-up. We shall continue. And uh, until then, I, I wish you uh, much success and uh, and uh, and happiness as you move onwards and upwards with all the many different orbits of of your career in so many different parts of the world so thanks for all you do i uh, i I'm, I'm i'm very very grateful because you're bringing truth and effectiveness and uh, and value into your audience so great to be thank together you. with you today and i i do look forward to next time as tempekwayo thank you Lachaim. Lachaim to you.